Welcome back to the EvokeCast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston. My guest today is physicist and mountain runner, Marcus Holler. Marcus has developed an app that measures running power for trail runners. His app is free, and like us here at Evoke, he has done this because he is curious and passionate. He is not trying to make money from this app. The algorithm that he created incorporates several unique components that make it more accurate than some of the big name power meters probably all the big name power meters, actually. Um, Marcus and I discussed the physics of running and special considerations for mountain running, including trail roughness, which is just one of those unique components his app is able to discern. This episode concentrates on the basics of how a running power meter works, what kind of data Marcus collects, and then a little bit about the algorithm. But it also is really talks a bit about you know, why you might want to consider using power measurements in your training. Um, mainly for pacing and that, you know, we dive into that a little bit. Marcus will, hopefully I'll get him back. We'll make, he'll make another appearance. And uh, we haven't set a date for that yet, but in it, we'll do a pretty deep dive into how trail runners can best use power as a training metric and integrate it into the data that is already displayed in training peaks. I'm convinced that Marcus has developed what could be a very useful tool for all mountain runners. And I greatly respect his openness and willingness to share it. I hope you find some thought-provoking ideas to stimulate your own curiosity. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel where you can find the recordings of our monthly book study group um, as we do a deep dive into the concepts that I laid out in training for the uphill athlete. We go chapter by chapter, one chapter each month. You can join this book group live on the last Sunday of each month at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. For more information, watch on our Instagram or email us at coach at evokeendurance.com to get the Zoom invitation link. Hope to see you out in the mountains and hope you enjoy the free information we at Evoke Endurance continue to provide to help you train and perform better. Thanks for coming to our show. Hey, welcome, Marcus. Uh, thanks for being willing to jump on a call with me on short notice, especially with me being a complete stranger. Um, I really appreciate that. And uh, I, I'm going to, there's a little intro before this, Marcus, so people will know a little bit about who you are. But could you please kind of outline your, you know, your background, what you do, and, you know, your, obviously your, your, your vocation is, you know, being a physicist, but your avocation is running around in the mountains. And so that's kind of unusual combination, but kind of give us a little background, please. Yeah. So first of all, um, thanks, Scott, for having me here. Uh, it's really a pleasure to talk with you. Um, yeah. So as you already said, I'm a, I'm a physicist. Um, and actually, to be honest, I'm not even in the sports sciences. So that's actually not my main field. I'm actually an astroparticle physicist. Um, but yeah, as you already said, I'm uh, yeah, I'm a passionate runner, so I'm not a professional, but I'm, I would call myself an ambitious, uh, ambitious amateur. That's probably the best to call it. And um, yeah, in principle, my uh, passion for physics um, and the passion for running at some point uh, naturally came together, I would say. This is basically so it's yeah, I mean, in, in, in principle, I mean, I started running. Um, I mean, I, I ran when I was younger already and then started seriously um, when I moved to Innsbruck um, here in Austria like uh, six years ago um, to run also so, so to start with trail run basically 
And um, yeah, I mean, I started to train and got better and better, but I always had the problem that um, I overpaced at my races. Mm. And then started, started, started too fast. Yeah. Yeah. I always started off too fast. And um, I mean, even when I was better trained, I, the, yeah, the rankings improved and so on, but still I never got, uh, got a hold on this problem really. And that's at some point when I, I thought, okay, I have to do something about that. And there is so much data, which is being collected by my watch. Uh, and also the additional um, chest strap, which which measures this um, vertical oscillation and so on. I thought, yeah, it, it must be possible to do something with that to improve on that. And this was, so you said only a few years ago that you got very interested in measuring um, power of running. Yeah. So there were already some power meters on the market, as you know. Um, and I I'm, was fascinated by reading your book. I'll have a, I'll put a link to your book in the show notes so people can um, go get a copy of it and, and read it. I highly recommend it if you're at all interested in understanding a little more about using power as a, a metric for monitoring your um, running efforts, your running, the training load that comes from running. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by the physics behind it. I'm an engineer by background, and so I have a little bit of a physics understanding. So um, I think that what I'd like to walk people through, you do a tremendously good job of explaining the physics of running and then how you modeled running you know, in your in your app, so that you could collect the appropriate data that could be used to give a reasonable number for power. And um, I want to talk about some of those of that aspect in particular. The second half of the book, which is also really interesting, is basically how to train using power um, from your running. I'm not sure we'll be able to do both in one show. I might have to have you come back and we can do another talk about actually how to how to use this. But I think if we can get a, I know for me as an engineer, I'm curious of like what is going on inside the black box, you know, the, uh, that's the, the the chest on my chest strap. You know, what is it that what data that is it's collecting that you're using? How are you using it? Um, what is the model that you've built for this? Then. Um, I think if we can kind of wrap our heads around that, and I, then I've got some questions about the difference between you know running and hiking and all of that stuff. So I've got a little list of these questions, but why don't we start with, you know, explain to us, um, you do a fantastic job, like I said in the book, but I'm sure you can synthesize it here, of the physics of running. Mm -hmm. So in principle, when you when you think about um, the different, so there are different components which are relevant when you try to, Get a number in the end so i mean maybe some some listeners would also like to listen actually or would like to hear what actually running power is i mean it's um the idea behind this um to to get an yeah a measure on um the mechanical effort which the runner um yeah basically uh performs or so, yeah how to say and um yeah so and and when you try to model this, you need to think about different things. So maybe one of the most easiest, which uh, one, of, one of the most easiest components um, behind this is um, when you think about running, I mean, it's a it's a sequence of, of jumps. And I mean, yeah, let's let's all think back uh, to school, maybe. I mean, when you lift an up object up, 
Um, this is uh, just you need you need to uh, put some energy into it. And the same also happens when when you run. I mean, you have to lift yourself up. And I mean, we do when running, we do this really well. I mean, we, we do a small jump each time we we lift off. And um, yeah, so for example, when you when you wear one of these um, chest belts um, straps, they they give you an estimate of um, how far you jump up. And this is typically on the order of a few centimeters. Um, I mean, it depends from runner to runner. It varies a little bit, but um, yeah. So in, in principle, you got something like a jump height. It's called vertical oscillation. Also, maybe those of you who who wear such a belt um, have seen it before. And yeah. So now I've talked about energy, but the question is, how do I come to power? And in principle, power is energy per time. And so, yeah, if I say I, I do like um, um, a cadence of 100 uh, steps per minute and have an average vertical oscillation of, um, I don't know, seven centimeters or so, then you know the weight of the athlete and you can combine this and you could already say, okay, this gives you some, some kind of uh, power directly from that. This is one component. And then, yeah, there are, other components so for example think about um yeah quite obvious the wind um i mean it, it doesn't have to be an external wind i mean it can be um quite calm around you but still when you're running at some point you will uh, generate an airflow and i mean for moderate uh, velocities it will be not too much but if you think about sprinters also it can be considerable and of course i mean if, if you have actual weather wind in addition then it makes it even more complicated but i think it's quite easy to understand that this also is something which um, has to be taken into account. Then there is another component, which, um, yeah, I mean, I call this just the horizontal component. This is basically, um, yeah, in the very end, this is the most complicated one, maybe, because um, depending on how you measure this, and also, I mean, there are different solutions on the market, as you already said. Um, yeah, it's... it's you, you need to you need to make some assumptions about that. So especially when you when you compare or when you think about running power um, as now something new, which which comes in the in the woke of uh, uh, of cycling power, where it's actually comparably easy to measure that. Yeah, when you think about that for cycling power, I mean, okay, you you um, apply a force to the pedal of the bike, and this is something which you can measure, and together with the um, velocity this force um, then gives you basically the power and so the, the um, rotational velocity now for running it's a little bit more complicated because whereas for cycling usually the upper body movement is almost negligible or it should be if if your posture is is good um, for running it's completely different because we need our upper body to um, yeah, to sustain. I mean, it's almost impossible to to have a rigid upper body and and still running uh, properly. I mean, of course. In fact, and, I would say you can't run effectively with a, a a stationary upper body. I mean, there's a reason we swing our arms and rotate the our torso a little bit. I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean, I've often tell people when they say they were trying to keep their upper body still, I say, well, if you really want to do that, strap your arms to your side and see how well you run when you have your arms strapped to your side. Obviously, it doesn't work very well. It's, it's also not really healthy, I guess. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, but but if you think about it, I mean, there is really, um, there is the movement of the arms. And I mean, you can, um, for those who don't believe me that this is also, that this should be taken into account or that this also contributes to power. I mean, just, just stand still and 
try moving your arms quickly without even running. I mean, your, your heart rate will go up. And this tells you that your body has to do some uh, work or has to put some um, yeah, metabolical power into that. And therefore, it also contributes to that. And this is also why I'm saying that this second or this horizontal component is quite complicated because, um, yeah, in, in my case, it takes all these things into account. And there is also some modeling, some parameterization um, included, which makes it a little bit more complicated. But maybe let's also, um, I will talk about one other component, which is especially important for trail runners, but also for everybody who doesn't only run on completely flat, flat surfaces. So when you, <clears throat> when you, when you just, uh, yeah, when you, when you hike or when you run up a mountain, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious it's, it's harder. And the reason for that is that, um, yeah, just for the, just like for the vertical oscillation, you also lift your body up just that it doesn't come down anymore, but it, it, you have to continuously, uh, put energy into it for, for, yeah, for just going higher. And this is again, a component actually, which is very easy um to measure because this is yeah um simple physics basically so you just take the um velocity um so the altitude velocity um and the um the weight of the runner and then you can do this and all right and now having well, talked can I ask, about can all I, these can sure. i stop you there for a second and ask a question about that would it it would seem like the steeper the grade the simpler or the, the more easily calculated that is like if you were climbing straight up let's say a ladder where you're you know every step is almost vertical and you're raising your body weight that's would be different than let's say running up a trail that's 10 percent grade because then you have this combination of the horizontal and the and the vertical is that am i correct in thinking that that it gets a little more complicated at normal running grades yeah, I mean, in principle, you're you're fully right. I mean, when <clears throat> when you have a very steep incline, all the other components will get smaller, should get smaller, um, and then the gravitational power um, should definitely be the the major part. The tricky thing is that I mean, I don't want to speak about any solution in particular, but um, yeah, I've seen things how how others do it, even large companies. And um, I'm pretty convinced from, from the plots I've seen that they sometimes don't take into account the correlation of this vertical oscillation power and the gravitational one. So what, I'm, what I mean is the following, just, just think about your, your running up a hill. And so we talked about the vertical oscillation before, yeah, you have to put power into um, lifting your body up. Okay, you could say you calculate this, even when you have the incline, and then you also have the gravitational power and you sum them up and you're fine funny thing is when you do that um the result um will be really completely overestimated mm. and um the reason is that when you when you when you run up a hill um just think about it i mean you jump up um and whereas on on a flat surface you go all the way down again yes um when you have an incline you don't because um, part of the jumping from the vertical oscillation is already converted into a, a height gain, which also contributes to the gravitational power. And if you just um, assume these two to be independent and sum them up, then you're making a mistake. I see that, and yeah, this, they don't sum, yes, I, I can see that, okay. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, there is even from one reference, so fortunately I don't remember, but I think there is even a quite, 
popular plot about running power where where you see a sketch of someone running up a hill and they say yeah you have this um, vertical oscillation power you have gravitational power and the horizontal power and so you just sum them all up and you're fine and in my opinion this is not correct but yeah yeah okay well that's interesting um and i think that so I, what fascinated me with your work when i two things when i when you i first stumbled upon it one was that you're a physicist so these kinds of this this sort of thinking comes naturally to you i mean this is uh, you know newtonian physics it's not it's not quantum mechanics we're talking about here so it's relatively easy you know most people with a high school understanding of physics can you know, even if they've forgotten the, their high school physics, these things will come back to them fairly quickly. And there's, and a lot of it is very, it, once it's explained, it's intuitive. You don't need to understand the mathematics that govern it are quite, quite simple. Um, as you point out, there's, you know, there um, at most in, you know, when we get to modeling, let's say the training stress, the most we might be dealing with are, you know, factors of, you know, a squared, we might be dealing with a quadratic issue, but we're not dealing with anything too crazy here. And so I think that was interesting to me is how you had simplified it into some very comprehensible physics. And, and by experimenting with um, other power meters, and actually working with one company, um, who was developing a power meter at the time, I got the impression that who in that particular case, I was dealing with some really smart software engineers, but they were neither physicists nor runners. And so they could, you know, if someone like you had been able to describe the model you wanted to have built and built into the programming or the software, they could have done that perfectly. But they didn't know, they didn't really fully comprehend, I could see the physics of running nor had they experienced it you know, in their own body. And so I felt like you know, the, the fact that you um, had both the runner background and the physicist background put you in a pretty unique position. And then I'm going to give you a little plug here in that you don't seem to be trying to make a living off of this, um, which you know, kind of like what I do, what we do here at Evoke is we're trying to get as much good information about training out to the world as we can. And we're not trying to hide it behind a paywall or, you know, yes, if you want to hire one of us as a coach, we're happy to help you with that. But in general, you know, our main goal is to try to help people understand how to train properly. And I was very impressed by your approach and by the fact that you're basically giving all this stuff away for free. I mean, the, the cost of your book is, you know, pennies is less you know, like a cup of coffee, basically. So it's um, I, I applaud that type of sentiment. And that gives me a lot of confidence that you're doing this because you're passionate about it, not because you're commercially um, or financially invested in, you know, again, trying to Take over the world or make a lot of money at it. So I, I really um, respect that. So it makes me want to like, you know, I don't feel like you're trying to hide anything from anybody here. You really just want to explain this and say, okay, here's the way I see it, and here's why I see it this way. Um, so anyway, that's I, I won't say more, but I I was very impressed by what I read. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So now we've got, so you've, you've taken this, these, the horizontal, the vertical, the gravitational components, and, and perhaps the, the wind resistance as well, um, and built that into a model that we needn't 
go into here because uh, it wouldn't help us in any way. And we probably, if you had a blackboard or something, maybe you could explain it to us, but I'm not sure that's necessary. Um, but I think that you'll have a couple, I understand the physics, but what there's another layer of energy production here, and that's on the metabolic end of it. And so what is the metabolic or the thermal efficiency of a muscle? Um, you know, how much of a, the chemical energy that's in the, the glycogen, the glucose or the fat, how much of that actually gets converted into work? Do you have an idea? Yeah. You, you know, that, I mean, that's a physiological, physiological question, but I'm sure you... I think you mean the efficiency, basically. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, so there I have to say that I don't uh, I don't know. I mean, I have a number in my head, but this is not a number which I, I deduced from somewhere. I basically, <laughs> to be honest, I kind of stole it um, from uh, from cycling, where I I saw okay, they they say at the end okay, you you exerted this amount of work, and this corresponds to to this um, amount of uh, burned um, calories, and in principle, I'm also doing the same in run power model. So I, in the end, of course, from, from having the power, I, I have, have the total amount of work after an activity. And I then also give an estimate of the, um, of the burnt uh, energy by your body. And I just take the same efficiency. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's probably not the same. It's just to have an independent measure of, um, uh, so because the watch also, if you have a heart rate measurement, uh, it gives you an estimate of how much energy you burned. And I just wanted to have an independent estimate um, for the users. And so I'm using this number, but it's, yeah, I'm just, uh, so just to say it, it's around 25% what I'm using, but it's. Yeah, that's, I, I didn't yeah. want to pin you down on it. I wasn't trying to um, make you pretend you were a physiologist, um, but I do think it's what I guess the point I wanted to make and get across to the reader is that we are pretty inefficient um, we're, we're about the same level of efficiency as an internal combustion gasoline engine. So around 20 to 25%. Um, and of course that varies depending on, you know, the, the economy of the runner, how, how economical they are, how little energy they need to use to propel themselves. And probably efficiency or economy of running varies more than on it does on a bicycle because on a bicycle, you're strapped into a machine that, somewhat limits your range of motion. Whereas in running, we have all the degrees of freedom. But I wanted to bring that up because I don't think a lot of people um, who aren't heavily involved in this kind of, in this world, understand that the, the calories that are needed to produce, let's say, you know, um, 100 watts, that, that you would need, if we're we're, uh, if we are only 25% efficient, then we would need to be producing what's at um, almost, I mean, what's that, about 700 watts? I mean, excuse me, we'd have to be, we'd yeah, be consuming. Yeah, yeah. Because, excuse yeah. me, excuse me, it's 400, we'd be consuming about 400 watts worth of chemical energy to produce 100 watts of mechanical energy or power, excuse me, power, I should say. Um, and so I think that's really an important thing to keep in mind. And, and it's also why uh, you know, this, I'm going to make a slight divergence. You correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, but my, what I've experienced over, and I've been using 
this digital information from heart for heart rate, especially since 1982, when I got the very one of the very earliest polar heart rate monitors that you could wear on your wrist. And um, at that, if since then, what I have noticed is there is a literal marketing war that's going on amongst all of these major technological, these companies that are producing these watches, that they all just keep wanting to add more features and um, things to it, like whether it's oxygen saturation or, you know, estimates of your max VO2 or you name it, there's just a million of these things. So when you read how many calories you used after a particular run, don't take that as gospel. I mean, it, it, it doesn't under account for your economy and, um, you know, or let's say in your case, you know, it, it basically is a very crude estimate. And so I, I guess I'm just railing on a little bit, in my opinion, the most, the only things that I tell the athletes I work with to be interested in are the GPS and the heart rate. Aside from that, you know, and, and, and but now with this power thing, and, and this is, again, what has fascinated me about what you're doing is that if we can actually model the power close enough that we can use it as a proxy for the workload that, you know, the athletes are experiencing as compared to using heart rate as a proxy, I think we can have a much better understanding of you know the actual work over some period of time that the athletes doing. So that's why I well contacted you and we started having an email exchange and you were very gracious in answering a lot of questions that I had. But that's when I I just realized I think a lot of the listeners that come to us would be very curious to hear about what you've done um, and the the how power meters in running. Are, especially the one you have developed, I think, are beginning to make it feasible or reasonable that we could use, start using power like a cyclist's use. And I'm sure that was your intention all along. Yes. So, so in, in, in principle, first of all, I, I fully agree also with, um, um, yeah, when you said don't trust um, all the numbers which come out of it. I mean, it's it's just maybe to give you um, a side um, a side remark regarding this um, calorie estimate um, from the watch. Um, so basically, now when I run um, with my solution, I I yeah I get I, after each run I get two calorie estimates. One um, which comes from um, from my watch and which is based on the measured heart rate, and then an independent one which is of course also in fact coming from the watch, but which is just calculated using um, the power measurement. And for shorter runs, um, they, although actually this efficiency factor, I didn't use, uh, I mean, I didn't calibrate it on uh, on these two. Um, I took it from from uh, completely somewhere else. And for shorter runs, um, the two really match really closely, typically within a few percent. But um, the longer the runs get, the more discrepancy comes. Um, so I've I've run ultras where I've seen like 30, 40 percent differences in the estimated amount of uh, burned calories, where typically the the estimate from the power measurement is always higher. So maybe just um, I when you say it's high compared to what? To to the heart rate based um, estimate. Oh, okay. because what in at least in my case, what what often ha often happens is that. I don't know about all this behind. Probably, I mean, I guess you do. Um, but especially when I when I run a long ultra, at some time maybe also the heart rate may decline for certain reasons. Maybe it goes up sometimes, but also sometimes it may decline. 
Um, and I mean, the processes uh, behind everything are complicated. And um, yeah, uh, I guess I guess the modeling, which is behind um, a heart rate based calorie estimate, doesn't take into account uh, efforts longer than five hours or so at the peak limit. Right. And you know, one of the things that we are I noticed now working with you know literally thousands of athletes over the past 20 some years is that at a, on a steep grade and especially if you add weight to the athlete like they're carrying a pack up a steep hill that heart rate becomes a terrible proxy for the amount of work they're doing because they're they're forced to move at a relatively slow speed and as a consequence, they're, they're more limited by local muscular fatigue than they are by the, a global um, limitation, cardiovascular limitation. And as a consequence, their, their heart has excess capacity um, you know, in terms of pumping. So the heart rate will be relatively low, but the, the muscles are still doing a great deal of work. They're just doing it, um, they're moving slow enough. So what we found is that decoupling between heart rate and actual, you know, what perceived exertion, let's say, um, when the grade is steep or the load is high. Um, so we kind of have to throw heart rate out the window when we're trying to assess, um, because we do that type of training with some of our mountain runners, but almost all of our mountaineers train at some point, some of their workouts will be with a heavy weighted pack going steeply up a hill. And for those workouts, we basically have to kind of guesstimate um, what the, the actual trainings we use, as you know, training peaks, which has a training stress score that it assigns. Um, and, and in our case, we've been pretty much limited to using heart rate as the basis for that stress. Uh, but we understand that, you know, you could be hiking at, at your limit, going as fast as you can, up a steep hill with you know 15 or 20 kilograms in your back and you might only see 130 heart rate but your perceived exertion might be nine out of ten and so there again there's a real decoupling there so i'm thinking about how your and this is the next question i have for you is using your power meter when hiking versus running because in hiking we don't really have those little jumps you were talking about so but you mentioned that in your book that you talked about you talk about speed hiking which is very common in ultra running races so how do you account for power in a hike when when a person is hiking yeah in principle very similar so um you still i mean okay it, in this case i'm still assuming that even when hiking you wear um, the belt which which measures the vertical oscillation because if you don't then um, I have to take a uh, an estimated value which is of course um, a strong simplification in this case but just assume that uh, if you do this um, you will still move your body up and down it's just not a, a full jump anymore but the, you still always have one foot on the ground and when you're walking yeah and and even your your whole body will be moved I mean yeah just just think about when walking on a um, on a flat surface then I mean you you may not might not realize it that much, but you're still going up and down a little bit on it. Not that much, but um, you're doing this. So and and then effectively it's it's very similar. So I mean I'm I'm still using the same uh, same algorithm, the same code. Um, there is one difference. So um, yeah, I mean one thing we haven't talked about is um, 
that um, so for this uh, vertical oscillation um, power, I'm basically so I'm only interested in in the mechanical mechanical energy which corresponds to the input from the body, so the um, which is provided by the um, by the metabolism. And our our muscles and tendons are really efficient actually in storing um, part of that energy um, and then releasing it afterwards again. And, and you mentioned, excuse me, let me uh, interject something there. I, I was, you put a number on that in the book of about, you, you said they, these tissues are roughly return about 50% of the energy that's put into them. Yeah, they're just, they're yeah, elasticity. They're just, exactly. So there, I mean, uh, of course, I, I didn't know this um, at all. Um, there, I just uh, did some, some quick um, literature research and I found um, um, a publication um, by some authors who who measured this um, also for different inclines and in, in principle I'm using that as an input model so but this is uh, in principle what people can assume that when you're running on a flat surface I mean of course it's not the same for everybody I mean I have to assume something so on, on the flat surface it's 50 percent um, when running um, and yes so for the basically this this means that um, in, in my model um, I'm yeah, I'm only taking 50% in this case of, um, of the vertical um, oscillation power. Now, when walking, uh, of course, everything is a little bit different. And then also the values which I use um, are different. I So I have to think if I also took that out of a publication, I think that there is one. I mean, I'm using def definitely something different here. And then, of course, the thing is when, so when, once you once you start to have an incline, um it changes a little bit this uh, this number and um so the baseline of of what i'm using in the model is is based on this publication which i think i'm even referencing in um on the app web page and there you can see how it changes um when when going up and this i'm basically just modeling and when when walking i also um use a slightly different number then um but then you can still um, apply the same same algorithm. Well, that, and, okay, that that answers the question well enough for me. I I think I I get it. It's just there's less vertical oscillation. Is what you're saying. So it because you're not doing these little the little jump the the little jumps are smaller uh, vertically. Actually, to recall, I think I mean I will have to look up for my recent runs, but I think actually when when speed hiking, actually these uh, vertical oscillation values uh, in terms of centimeters don't have to be necessarily much lower especially when going up but um of course i mean you're you're walking um when hiking and of course then the cadence is much um, smaller and this of course means that the corresponding power is also correspondingly lower yes and have you found in your i mean in your own uh you probably haven't done a lot of research on this other than on yourself but have you discovered that there is a certain a gradient where for you it it's becomes more efficient to walk than to run. You can just tell that you can climb this hill faster and maybe with less or lower heart rate. Um, is that and do you think that what do you think that's related to or caused by? If you agree with me on that, yeah, I fully agree. I mean, at some at some incline, definitely it will become more efficient to. Um, to walk instead of run and I think the main reason behind that is yeah just as we talked about the vertical oscillation actually because if you if you're effectively becoming slower um, because it's it's getting very steep 
um, but you're still doing lots of tiny quick jumps, this means you're putting extra power into that. Whereas if, yeah, if, if you just, I mean, if you go, if you just do the same speed, so if you cover the same distance um, and and um, altitude difference while walking, I mean, you're you're just doing a little bit bigger steps and then you're using less power. And it's hard for me to put a number on that. And I, and I think it's really different um, for each runner. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what I have noticed is that people with long femurs tend to um, need to switch to running at a lower grade than someone with a short femur. So shorter limbs, it's almost like you, ha you have more leverage. It's like those people with a short limb, they have um, you know, smaller gear on their front chain ring on their bicycle in a way, and they've got more leverage. And so they seem to be able to manage um, steeper terrain more, more easily. But that's you know, purely you know, just my observation over the years. It just seems like the leverage uh, advantage. It's a little bit like, um, let's say, you know, people with short um, humerus bones, the upper bone and the arm, tend to be stronger at pull-ups than people with a long humerus who don't mm -hmm. have that kind of leverage. So I think there's something to do with, I mean, I, I haven't done an exhaustive study. I've just noticed this over many years, but they're, um, just observationally, there's something to do with lever lengths here that, that seems to have something to, to, to some effect. Obviously, there's a lot of other components that go into this, but it, it, you know, if you had to make a um, like a generalization, I think you could say, oh yeah, someone with you know shorter arms and legs will probably be able to run steeper. And uh, um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, that's that's really um, some really interesting input. I've never thought about that. Maybe something to add only here. Um, I mean, for me, I'm observing this. For me, it's also not always the same. It depends on at which intensity I'm running. So I would I would maybe view it from a different way also. Um, so so for example. When I'm doing intervals, it can be a really, really steep hill and I'm still running and it might still make sense and be more efficient than walking because, um, yeah, my speed is high enough. Yes, your speed. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, maybe speed is really a critical factor. And, um, and then also somebody who is, who is fitter and I mean, a uh, professional um, athlete, of course, for, for them, the, the turnover point um, comes comes at a, at a steeper incline compared to, to an amateur. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. The fitness, that's probably the biggest single component right there. Um, and I, I think I remember reading in the book that you necessarily have to leave out any work done by the arms. So this is excluding people using poles for hiking or running. Is that your power meter can't capture that that much, that kind of energy, can it? I mean, it depends a little bit. So my based on my observations, um, when I'm hiking with poles, it still works. So I don't get the impression that it doesn't work anymore. But, and there is a big but, only when I'm wearing the chest strap. Because if you don't wear the chest strap, of course, then um, what happens is that your watch cannot um, properly estimate your cadence anymore when you are using poles. Let's talk about this chest strap. Let's talk about you know which brands, which models, and tell us what's in this these chest straps that allows them to capture this data. What's what's inside that black box, so to speak? 
I mean, I've never uh, opened one really. I mean, I'm just <laughs> using. I mean, I'm using uh, uh, Garmin HRM Pro, um, but I think if it's HRM Run or whatever, and I think there is also one from Polar which uh, also offers running dynamics. Although I, yeah. Um, what do you suspect in, is in? So even though you've never opened one up and seen what the chips are exactly, in there, exactly. Um, so I never checked the you, chips. What do you think that they're? What is the data that they're collecting and that, that's outputting to the watch? Um, so yeah, they're having different sensors. Um, it's it's an acceleration sensor mostly, um, and this acceleration sensor can, um, yeah, it it's it gives you a better measurement of the of the cadence. Um, more quickly and more accurate than the watch typically, although for newer watch models, this might be different also. Um, and then with this um, acceleration measurement, you also get this um, vertical oscillation. And um, yeah, they also do this um, like ground contact time balance and also ground contact time um, measurement. Yeah, and I, this you can do with a, a simple acceleration sensor, I think. And do you think it's three axis? It's measuring all three axes? acceleration in them or is it just horizontal and vertical i mean it has to have something and i'm not sure if it's actually horizontal in the moving direction but it's mm. definitely vertical and maybe in the lateral horizontal lateral. direction okay because of this um ground contact time uh, balance the balance yeah. thing yeah okay yeah. and well and well, maybe i guess there wouldn't be a need for a gyroscopic um sensor in mm. there uh but when it you mentioned in the book that some of the data that's collected is uh, the elevation change and that co collecting that elevation change data um, from a barometric, a watch with a barometric altimeter versus a GPS altimeter is better. Are, and I was surprised to read that, not that I don't, I mean, I understand the barometric altimeter is a better one, but how fine a measurement, how much change in elevation can those barometric altimeters measure that's actually a really really good point and it's also very important and there are i've seen um lots of differences in qualities of barometric altimeters um that are manufactured in different garment watches even so it's a really interesting point but um just to to mention what what i see on my watch in principle so it's um typically gives you a relative accuracy over a few seconds um, at the order of like i would say 10 to 20 centimeters so actually quite good although um yeah when we're really looking deep into the data um you even see if you're staying completely fat i mean over 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 longer durations um you have the weather which might change and therefore you might have a gradient in there but if you're just um, looking at it over a few seconds um yeah they might even oscillate sometimes um at a period of maybe like 10 seconds or so i have observed um, and so it's really, really, really important to um, try to have this under control. And therefore, um, yeah, I've even seen watches which have a barometric altimeter, but just not um, such a good one. And for them, uh, the fluctuations are much larger. And then also the power output, of course, is affected. I mean, I have an algorithm in there which is trying to catch these things. Um, I won't go, in, go into the details, but um, of course, the what's really important is, and this is generally quite important. I mean, when you have a final power number on your watch, it it basically depends strongly on two things. Firstly, on the input data it's being calculated, and then secondly, on the model. And 
of course, when the input data is is no good, then a good model cannot help. And of course, if, if the model is not so good, then the best input data doesn't help. So they have to work together. But at and a given point in time, sorry, maybe just okay. to, to add this up. At a given point in time, I'm always even, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have to admit, I'm someone who really um, looks at my watch uh, too often, probably. Um, but at a given point in time, when I look at the watch, I never fully believe um, the number which I get out there. I mean, I always look at it, keep it in mind, and always have in mind that maybe at a given point in time, there was, I mean, you always have arrows when measuring something, and sometimes they are larger, sometimes they are smaller. And so this barometric altimeter thing, so that I use a, a, an old Garmin 935. I've been using this for many years and it does have a barometric altimeter, although this is one of their, this is probably the, the cheapest Garmin that still has a barometric altimeter. So perhaps this is one of the ones that's not especially accurate. I don't know. Um, because there are times when I, I think, well, wait a minute, that cannot possibly write. I look at a topographic map and then a half an hour later, I look at it again, and I go, no, I definitely have climbed more than 100 meters. Um, so I'm not sure what goes on in behind that. But to, what model watch are you using? I'm using a 4945, so the successor of yours. Basically, the one that came right after this, yeah. All and, right. and the quality of the barometric altimeter and this one is really good. Okay. So I'm, I don't have a direct comparison to the more expensive Phoenix line, but I would say it's comparable. Whereas you really see when you when you took the cheaper models, so a friend of mine is using the, how is it called, the Vivo, the one with the touchscreen, Vivo Active 4, I think, oh, also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this one also has a barometric altimeter, and but it's definitely of lower quality. Yeah. Because that was uh, news to me, that they could measure that uh, small enough um, changes in elevation that it would be that would impact your model because i i thought of it as only the way i have used the barometric altimeter is over large time scales in big you know many meters of uh, elevation change not a few centimeters so that's surprising to me it's good news because that as you said that allows you another piece of data to put into your model to help understand the vertical oscillation part um, now that's quite interesting. Um, I mean, that's not about vertical oscillation. That's really about the gravitational. Component. Oh, the gravitational component. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. That'd be the vertical displacement, basically, uh, as you're going uphill. And and in the end, I mean, what I'm what I'm using, um, really on a technical level, in the end. So I'm really using the altitude, which is provided inside the code from Garmin to me, which is typically, I mean, what they are doing is, as far as I understood correctly, um, they are have a combination of um, the barometric altimeter data um, with a, um, yes, and sometimes it's it's recalibrated using the GPS data. Oh. So this is being done, yeah. But on when you look at, at short-term evolution, um, it's definitely the, the altimeter data. Although, I mean, also when keeping this in mind, just, just another um, funny side story. On, on Saturday, I was on a long run and it was really um, windy weather here. And then I really observed that the, um, especially when going up or so, um, that um, yeah, the uh, power values were um, less accurate than usually. And this is of course also an influence. I mean, when you have um, unsteady weather, 
um, then this affects, uh, of course, the um, the barometric. I mean, the the air pressure, and this goes right into into the result also. And so I know that some of the running, especially the foot pods, have I think the new stride foot pod can, has a a wind sensor, so it can measure both the weather wind, but also you know whether you have a headwind or a, a quartering wind or something like that. And in your case, when you said you didn't think that when you had a windy day that you were out there, it was that was it just that your perception, your perceived exertion, or your heart rate was higher for the power than for what you would expect for that power? Was it just um, a disconnect between those or because you're you don't have a way of collecting wind um speed, do you? It's true. I mean it's it's in, in the end a um combination of um perceived exertion, but it was like um a really uh continuous um incline and I was going up really at a really similar effort, but values were fluctuating too much. And I by now I've got a quite good feeling that how much it is okay to fluctuate and and yeah. And when not, um, I mean, since you were asking about if it's possible also in this case to use um, to to measure the wind, I mean, what what the Garmin watches and probably also those of other brands are nowadays doing is that um, they, in in case you're connected um, to your to your cell phone, then the cell phone uh, tries to get the weather information from the near near the nearest weather station, and so I get wind information and I can also. Um, use it um, for the for the power calculation, um, and I've I've implemented this, but by default it's turned off. In my case, mostly because when you're running on trails and when you're in a forest, I I don't want to be affected by some wind measured as at an isolated um, yeah uh, weather station. So I I rather like to not have it. So. I, I would agree. I think, you know, we all know that the weather in the mountains is so can change. You just go around a corner and you have a completely different weather system. And so, yeah, I think trying to, you know, they don't put, you know, not there's, well, there are weather stations in the mountains, but it's so localized, the weather in the mountains and the wind that I think it would be, it's sort of pointless to try to figure out how that would affect you. Um, anyway, I, Another you know, strange little story, I suppose, but years years ago when Stride first came out, I was curious about Stride and I bought one of their very first foot pods and I used it. And of course, I do almost all my running nowadays on trails in the mountains. And I was shocked and disappointed about how little power I could produce. Um, and what then occurred to me was that they hadn't considered in those that first, at least I assume in the first generation stride, it was exclusively meant for running on flat ground. It was made for road runners and that sort of thing. And um, what I would notice is that when I was working at my heart, my hardest going up the steepest hill, the power would be, you know, would be very low. And then when I would go downhill, it would, you know, the power also would be very low. But when I ran on the flats, oh, that that feels, you know, okay, so that's what 200 watts feels like. But then I would be going up a hill at what probably was closer to 300 watts, and it would read 120 watts. And I was thinking this, and I, I basically gave it to one of the athletes that I coach, uh, Luke Nelson, and I said, would you try this out? Is it just me that's, <laughs> is something wrong with me? And he tried it, and he said, no, this is definitely not, it doesn't work for me either. Now, I think that they have changed their algorithms. These newer strides do accommodate vertical, you know, the, our elevation change. Um, 
and you know, I don't know that they're, what their algorithms are, like you probably don't know either, uh, but I, I was sort of shocked at the time um, that, and the reason I thought it was strange is if you're running on a road or a track, why not just use pace um, as, as a metric for you know, the, your training load or anything else? Because you know, other than headwind, um, you know, the, the conditions are so much the same. It's like swimming. I mean, they don't use power meters in swimming. They just use the pace because every pool is 50 meters long and the water temperature is always the same. And so it, it just set, seemed like a, an, a, an unnecessary addition to measure something by power when you have pace was so accurate. Um, do you agree with that? Or do you think I'm, is it, am I just being a Luddite? I mean, I, I don't want to make any enemies, but I, <laughs> your opinion is my opinion. I mean, if I would only run on on, on flat surfaces, I mean, okay, of course, you have the, the wind sensor and the newest drive ones, and that's definitely something which um, which makes an influence um, when, when running flat, especially, and when you're living in a windy region. But if it's calm outside and it's flat, why not use pace? Yes. And I mean, that's certainly historically been the way roadrunners have trained is, you know, based off of pace, you know, whether it's their latest race pace or some kind of time trial that establishes a pace that they can either work above or below as some percentage based on what they're trying to accomplish. Whereas in our world where we're, you know, on very uneven terrain and um, different footing conditions, which I want to talk about in a second, then we're really you know, until fairly recently, we were stuck with heart rate. That was it. And heart rate, as we've talked about before, is a kind of a poor proxy for for working for um, the work put output. Um, one of the things I was fascinated by, and it's there's a great picture on the on your website of a, a very rough looking trail. I'm not sure how a person would run on that trail. Um, and right next to it, a very smooth forest road, and your can you explain how your um, algorithms and your app can differentiate and how it, what it uses to, in order to differentiate so we can actually tell when you're on a smooth trail versus a rough trail? Yeah. So the, so what, what's behind this is the following. So I've, I've talked about um, these different power components, which are basically standard for all the solutions of power meters. And in, in run power model, there is um, one additional component which we haven't talked about before. And this is um, uh, what I call trail power. And so, so yeah, you were asking how it's estimated. In principle, what um, when you're running um, on, a, on a smooth surface, it, it doesn't matter if it's flat or if it's going uphill or downhill. Um, the way you could describe the movement is it's rather homogeneous. Whereas once you start to, um, yeah, once it starts uh, to become technical, um, what you have to do is, I mean, you have to go sideways a little bit. You have to vary a little bit more. Sometimes you have to jump up more and sometimes less. And um, yeah, it, it's uh, when you look at the data, um, so in, in my case, I'm using um, both um, the cadence data and the vertical oscillation data. And yeah, so if it's non-technical, this is both of them are really, really smooth and and really flat. And of course, I mean, when you start to do uh, an interval, of course, you're 
running with a higher cadence um, and also the vertical oscillation changes, but then it will for the time being be, be constant again um, until so you every, change it. On, the, on a flat surface, every stride is essentially the same as every other stride. So you get this. And so even when going up or downhill, basically. Yes. yes. Right. For the time, it as doesn't change that much. As long as it's smooth, then the, the vertical oscillation, the stride rate and length and all that will remain pretty much constant through that over a fairly long period of time. But then when you get exactly. on a, a rough trail, what happens? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So when you look at the data, it really, um, I also have a plot in the book, but for those who are interested, I can also send it to them. It really starts to fluctuate quite a lot. And um, so I got the idea that, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious to everybody who is running on trails that it is just, um, uh, I mean, it, it is uh, more fatiguing to, to run a technical trail at a given pace um, than just a smooth forest road. And the reason is, of course, I mean, when, when you're fluctuating more, you're also going to the side and so on. So you have to accelerate your body in, in all different kinds of motions, which are just not captured by the normal, um, yeah, by, by the other components which we were talking about. And so, yeah, I just uh, took a pragmatic solution and said, okay, I will just um, use this um, degree of fluctuation. And to give you a number, I'm always evaluating um, the last five seconds. And if there was any fluctuation, um, the greater the fluctuation was, um, the higher is this estimated trail power. And if it's basically, if there is no fluctuation, then there is no trail power. And in the end, um, this, um, so you mentioned this, um, yeah, these two pictures and with this, um, with this graph below, um, what I'm then also giving as an output uh, is what I call the trail score. And this is um, just the percentage um, of the this trail power divided by the total power. And this can become quite high. So it can be on a technical trail like 30, 40%, meaning that really the final power number can be um, yeah, 30 or 40% of the total power, which you're getting in this case. And also implying that if you wouldn't have the trail power, of course, the output number would be correspondingly lower. And so this this the trail power component of the uh, equation or model that you're using is just additive. Um, so you, you would have, you know, in a case of a flat road, you would essentially have a, that that you'd be adding zero. So you'd be no real additional power. But then the rougher the trail, and especially the faster you, is that a linear um, change? So you, the, the faster you run, you, I guess it would depend on the vertical oscillation in that case. Um, but it's still an additive, you know, a component of the of the equation, right? Yes, it's additive. And so the, the greater the fluctuation, um, both in the cadence and also, so I, I, I use the weighted mean basically. So I, I look at the fluctuation of the cadence, I look at the fluctuation of the um, vertical oscillation, and the greater those are, the greater is also the final output. Um, also multiplied with the total cadence. Yeah, just imagine if you have a fluctuation of the vertical oscillation, for example, of let's say, I don't know, it's it's fluctuating by two centimeters. Um, then, of course, if if in the last five seconds you did I don't know um, fifteen steps, um, then this means that it's it's different than if you only did ten steps. And so it has to be more if the cadence is higher. And also, of course, it's it's also scaled with the weight of the runner. And would, do you guess that that is a unique function to your? Uh, model that, that other power meters aren't using something like that. 
So to my knowledge, yes, I think this is completely new. I mean, maybe, yeah. And you proposed in the book that going forward, it would be possible to grade trails by on some sort of scale system um, for their the technicality, the technical challenges of that trail um, based on, uh, you know, if you collected enough running data of many people over that trail, you would be able to cr create a grade for that trail, let's say one through 10 or something like that. Um, how did, have, has anybody taken you up on that idea yet? I think it's a great no. idea. No, <laughs> thanks a lot. No, nobody has taken it up. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it would be possible because it really, so that the trail score really is a quantification of how technical the trail was. And this is, of course, depending on the runner. I mean, if you have a more experienced runner, I mean, if if Kilian Joné is running uh, a trail and I run the same trail, he will definitely have a lower trail score because he is just much more efficient in running the same trail because he's good at running technical stuff and I'm just moderate. Um, but like you said, I mean, yeah, if you if you average um, that, then you could really grade um, different trails and that might be something for uh, trail races um, to really put a number on how technical it is yes now there does seem to be some kind of a, a technical grading but it seems very subjective when you're asking people how technical a trail is um now that's again many of these things you've built into your model or that you've thought about are uh obviously show somebody who's thought deeply about this and, you know, is really passionate about trying to figure it out. Um, I had a, I don't want to go too far down the, the, um, let's say training with power, but something that I, you know, training peaks uses as a metric is normalized power. And, that's a term that I think most people aren't very familiar, familiar with. Um, I think most people would think of normalized power and average power as essentially the same thing. You're just gonna say, well, what was the average power for this workout? Um, and you know, in a, maybe to many people's thinking that would just be the same as normalized. So could you explain what normalized power means if they are using a power meter for their running? And what's the difference between that and average? the average power? Mm -hmm. So normalized power was introduced, I think, by Andrew Coggan, who was, um, as far as I understood, really the, the guy behind developing uh, cycling power-based um, training. And, and yeah, it's, it's basically, so to put it in words, normalized power is an estimate um, of the average power you could have done um, for the same workout um, if you would have done it at a constant intensity. Meaning that, for example, if you do um, lots of variation, um, let's say intervals, for example, um, then I guess it's quite obvious that um, you could have done with the same uh, exertion um, yeah, a higher average power than the one you actually did. And the normalized power is basically an estimate um, how high this average power could have been if it wouldn't have been an interval workout, but um, one with constant intensity. So it, take, yeah, it takes the variability of the intensity out of it. And yes. that's important, I think, in a real world situation, maybe you know, maybe not on a stationary bike trainer where you or it's easy to hold you know, a, a constant power, but in the world of mountain sports, 
where there's always going to be a great deal of variation um, because of the terrain we're dealing with, then it seems like it's more it's it's much more impactful to the workout. It's going to be much different. Like, you know, let's say a, a cycle, a steady state on a cycling trainer, the normalized power and the average power could theoretically be the same. Um, whereas if you go out for if anyone who's ever run in the mountains and watched their heart rate or let alone their power knows that they're, they're just um, moving around crazy hot, you know, crazy, crazy amount of variation. And so in a case like that, it seems like being able to calculate the normalized power um, as opposed to the average power is even more is much more important because of the variability. Would you agree? I definitely agree. Yes. And like you already said, I mean, it's um, when you're really out in the mountains, it's it's basically impossible. I mean, when you're on a flat road um, running, it's again possible to have the normalized power um, or the average power, basically the normalized power. But as soon as um, variation comes into account, this uh, starts to become uh, more and more impossible. And this is also fine, because just imagine if you have lots of altitude changes, um, I mean, you definitely, even if I, if, even if I define a, a race target in terms of power, I mean, I use this for the flat sections, for the uphill sections, I scale it a little bit up, but when I go downhill, I mean, it would not be healthy to try to keep, I, I don't know, 300 watts or so for when running down uh, a technical trail with minus 15% uh, uh, incline. And, but still, um, in, in the very end, if you're running a race, what's determining how fast you finish that race is your average power. Mm -hmm. But how, uh, yeah, how what what you're feeling as a fatigue in the end is the normalized power. Mm -hmm. So everybody who tries to to run faster at races, um, the goal should always be to to minimize the gap between average power and normalized power. This doesn't always mean that you. Like I said, I mean, when running down, there is a limit and you shouldn't shouldn't do too crazy, of course. But if you already know before for a race what a realistic um, um, yeah, what a realistic target power would be, then you can um, yeah, then it, you can perform better in the end because you will then not overpace too much at the beginning. Or, I mean, some people are also really good at overpacing at the inclines and then be fatigued um, because of that. And really minimizing this gap is, is what brings best performance for the individual athlete. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. But thanks for clarifying that and bringing that up. Um, before we wrap up, I want to go back to the very beginning where you talked about one of one of the incentives, probably besides just your natural intellectual curiosity, but one of the incentives for you to to, to develop this power meter um, was to uh, because you didn't weren't very good at pacing yourself in these long races, and I think that's very common, even not even for racing, but you know. Mountaineers do this, uh, people who just are casually hiking or doing the approach to a climb. It, and my theory on this has, and the reason I think it's more prevalent in very long distance events, let's say, you know, um, you know, two to two and more hours, is that when you're doing a relatively short event, then you're limited kind of by the um, the second ventilatory threshold, the lactate threshold, you know, when you're there and you go, oh boy, I shouldn't go any faster than this. It's a very, you get a very powerful 
feedback signal that you know your pace is too hard. Whereas you're doing these many events that last many hours, you're probably not well. If you are, if you bump into that upper threshold, you're probably going to have a very bad race um, if you do that, especially early on. So people know that they need to be fairly cautious in the beginning with their the pace that they select, but. Because you're so far away from that physiological, um, you know, the, the flashing red light that's going to come on when you hit that second ventilatory threshold, you're so far from that, it's harder to gauge, you know, where you are on the intensity scale. And, and you know, of course, there's the excitement of the beginning of the race. There's um, everyone's going to feel fresh and, and good in, that, in those early stages. So when you said that this was this was one of your um motivations i was thinking boy a lot of people you know what we do now is we try to tell people okay for the first hour and a half you should try to stay with this heart rate you know don't get too crazy with your heart rate but in your case using um power would even be a, a better system um and have so have, has that worked out for you in whether it's training or racing in terms are you better now at pacing yourself Definitely, much better. I've really, I mean, um, last year, I mean, I, I was injured for almost one year. I had a tendon problem in, uh, starting in 2021 and lasting for almost a, a year. And last year, I um, basically, when this resolved, um, I had eight weeks of training and then I um, participated again in a, in a trail marathon here in Innsbruck. And that was the best ever performance, although I hadn't trained properly and just started again because of the pacing, really. And I knew before what um, what target power I wanted to do. And of course, I scaled it a little bit up for the uphills, but I didn't go way above that. And also for the training before, I really said, okay, this is race-specific training. And then I already focused on this um, training intensity, um, for, on this racing intensity. And it always revolved around that. So Just you, for you, had a, you had a, this uh, a racing power um, that you kind of knew that this is what the power you wanted to target. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And in the end, I achieved it by it deviated by three percent or so. Wow. Of the average power then of the race. Um, yes. So I would have to check again in detail, uh, but yeah. And so that's a, a great tool right there because I frequently talk to people who I I know could have had a better performance than they did in some race or even some training but they didn't pace themselves well. And a tiny, I mean, I have trained athletes on a running track quite a bit, and I have seen the, this in a, in a workout where the difference of one second per 400 meters when they're doing a long, you know, let's say they're doing, um, you know, 1500 meter repetitions and we're we're doing those or training for a marathon or something like that. And one second per 400 meters, and that tiny deviation in pacing can completely, you know, by the time they get to the fifth or sixth one of these repetitions, they're cooked just by being one second too fast in 400 mm -hmm. meters. So pacing, and most of us, most of the, especially mountain athletes, they don't have that con conception of pacing because they don't have a way of, of measuring it that closely. They're not training on a track and they don't understand how, you know, small variations in pace. Maybe it was one second per 200 meters, but it's, again, fairly small difference. Um, 
And they don't, so they don't have the experience of knowing that. Whereas when I have worked with athletes like Tom Evans, who spent a lot of times training on a track, he understands pacing in the mountains really well because he has this, if you do enough training on a track, you, you don't even need that stopwatch anymore. You have this feeling of, oh, okay, I know I'm running at 57 seconds per 400 right now, and I can handle that. But if I try to drop to 56 seconds per 400, I'm going to last, you know, two two more laps and I'm done. And so I, you know, while I'm not advocating people go back and, you know, spend a lot of time training on a track, I think this concept of pacing is one in these ultra distance races that is even more important than in shorter distance racing, because if things go wrong in, you know, on, you know, hour 15 of a 20 hour race, you're going to go from losing a few seconds per kilometer to losing many minutes per kilometer. And when you're, when you're forced to walk and everyone else is running, suddenly, you know, you, you can lose so many places and so much time that I think the consequences of poor pacing in these ultra races and mountain races is much more, it's much more significant than even in a, you know, shorter, flatter races. So I would encourage people to you know, get a copy of your book and start learning this stuff because, you know, if, if you have had trouble pacing in your races, this would might be a great way to, to uh, understand that and, and to control it. Um, I have a couple of other questions, but I think I would have saved them. And I'm going to put, I'd, I'd love to get you back on and talk about how to use power in, you know, people with people's training. Um, mm -hmm. But before we wrap up, tell me, you know, have, have we left anything out in terms of the, um, the development of this model or how, how people should be thinking about their training, be, you know, before we get into go down on the weeds um, about actually training with power? Mm. I mean, we've we've talked about many things. I mean, definitely forgot something. It's, I mean, I maybe just as a message to everybody, try to always. Uh, I mean, it's it's a great tool with or great tools which we have nowadays, but um, try to always also be skeptical. Whatever solution you're using, yeah, if you're using my free app or if you're using, uh, if you spend some uh, spend lots of money um, on whatever you're using, I mean. Yeah, just be skeptical at a given point in time because yeah, this is all just uh, based on on individual measurements which have uncertainties, and then there is also the models behind that, and keep that in mind. And maybe one other thing, um, yeah, what I wanted to say is that I mean, there is uh, whenever um, somebody comes with a new solution um, for a running power meters. And for example, when when a watch a new watch is coming out, um, and yeah, then the reviewer is testing um, all kinds of different stuff, including um, the running power. Um, it's it's quite typical. They're always saying, yeah, there is no common standard in measuring running power, um, and that's fine like that. They say, and then they are doing a few tests, and typically they are running on flat surfaces and compare different solutions. And then what they say is, yeah, okay, there is no standard. They are differing, but yeah, in principle, they are all agreeing more or less on a relative scale, but they never do this quantitatively or almost never. And okay. actually, for me, this is kind of, I mean, be more skeptical just because um, a huge company gives you a solution for measuring running power. Um, this doesn't mean that, that you have to, that you can fully trust the number. I mean, I've seen, I, I can recall uh, just lately, I've seen on Strava, 
an interval workout um, of, yeah, I think he's a professional runner on a national scale in Germany. And um, this interval workout, I mean, his, his, his heart rate was really always developing quite nicely. Um, and some of um, the speedy parts um, he did on a flat surface and some um, on, an, on an incline. And the final power output um, on the incline was like, I think, 50 to 100 watts higher than um, on the flat surfaces. I mean, he didn't care about that. He just paced himself on, on heart rate. Um, but if you really say, okay, I'm using that now and I'm using this to pace myself, be critical. So I am always um, using the combination of uh, heart rate also and power uh, for cross-calibrating myself. And, and probably perceived exertion isn't a bad place, bad thing to have yeah. either. Like the other day, I think when I first contacted you, I had um, downloaded your app and went out and ran on it. We're still in midwinter here. In fact, we had a, a meter of snow in the last couple of days. But before that snow came, I was, I'm was i having to do all my running on snow. And I was running along at, you know, with 180 or 200 watts. And I was thinking, God, this feels hard. Well, it's because the traction is bad. It's, you know, the conditions are soft. So, but it was clear to me that this is not really 200 or 180 watts that I'm running with. It's probably more like 280 watts is what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and so I think you have to kind of keep that in mind too. But would you say, I, this is something I forgot to ask you about before. So I want to, before we finish, I want to ask for sure. So you're familiar, I'm sure, with the you know the, the difference between accuracy and precision. Um, you know, is it really that important we're getting an accurate power number? Or is it more important that it's repeatable and precise so we can, you know, that that, you know, 100 watts one day is the same as 100 watts the next day? Um, which do you, do you think it's which is to in my mind, it would seem like the repeatability or the precision is more important than the accuracy. But what's your thought on that? I mean, I fully agree. It, uh, the repeatability is, is the more important thing. So um, on an overall scale, um, that's uh, less important in this case. But um, what for me is also quite important is um, that when you, yeah, when you evaluate different conditions, that it still makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, mm -hmm. I'm I'm using this um, not only on uh, on flat roads. So I'm really using this under lots of different conditions. And I mean, I'm not saying that that my solution is really performing perfectly all the time. I mean, when it's really, really technical, of course, I mean, it cannot work anymore, right? But still, I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm running up a 10% uh, incline, um, it should still be um, comparable to, to what I have with a similar flats. effort on, on flats, right? Mm -hmm. And if I can't rely on that anymore, and if I would have to define new goals, I mean, then this is losing some credibility for me. Yeah, it's using some usefulness. Yeah, the usefulness exactly. would be usefulness. Yeah. Yes. Well, so far the you know the messing around I've done with yours, and I've had some on the roads where there's some dry pavement, and some on a treadmill, and some um, outdoors on the snow. And so far, I have to say that I've been pretty impressed with uh, it, it. It matches. You know, I've been doing this, I'm almost 70 years old. I've been doing this a long time. And so I have a pretty good sense of you know, perceived exertion, heart rate, and that kind of stuff. And it, and it 
it matches pretty darn well um, with what I would feel. And in fact, I used it um, one day skinning. I think I even told you this. I was skinning up my local ski mountain here. And oh, you rolled it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's probably pretty close to what the power is. You know? So it seemed to be able to model that, which is, you know, would be like walking slowly. I mean, it's in your, you can't, we're, we're skinning up the very steep fall line. So probably, you know, 50% uh, grade. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's not very, you know, the tempo is rather slow. There's really probably very little vertical oscillation, but it correlated again, really closely with my, what I would see with my heart rate climbing a steep hill like that on foot. So, so far, I, you know, I again, haven't given it the, you know, enough time yet, but the fiddling or a little bit of fiddling around I've done with it, I've been very impressed and uh, I'm excited to have another tool or using with athletes. Um, in fact, I got Tom Evans using it now. So oh, wow. uh, that's and nice he's, to hear. He's, he's actually, he's, he's also got a stride because I don't know if stride sponsors him or not. He's got so many sponsors, I can't keep track, but he is, um, he is using a stride as well. So it's kind of interesting. We can compare the numbers and see him. And um, he hasn't been using it enough recently to, to be able to, to tell any difference yet, but um, but I think we'll get some numbers out of that. Nice. Anything else that we before we wrap up? I know I've taken up a good deal of your evening, and I really appreciate your taking the time to. It was a pleasure begin, to me to meet a complete stranger. I mean, I didn't, you know, we didn't, we had never communicated before about a week or ten days ago. Um, so I, I thank you for your being willing to just hop on a, a call like this. Thanks for having me here again. And yeah, if you want another session, uh, just ask me. I think that you, now that we have this sort of background about what what you're measuring with power, what you know, everybody should be measuring when they're trying to get enough um, data to, to measure power, it would be useful, like this was the basics, but I think it would be useful for people to understand how this relates to their own training and how they could use power in their own training. Because I think this is a, a, a really good tool for mountain athletes to have. Um, and I want to try, I'm going to start encouraging more people to use it. Um, before I was pretty skeptical because of my previous experience. And, but now with yours, I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's something to this and it's time we start you know, looking ahead um, the technology might be there and, you know, not just the technology, but, you know, actually the model that you've created seems to me based more on uh, what running looks like, the physics of running. And I, so I, again, I'll, um, I'll try to put together some questions. Um, I'll read, I'll reread that part of the book, come up with some questions and we can maybe walk through, especially how it relates to the metrics that training peaks uses because most of the people we work with and I think listen to our podcast are already on training peaks. And so I think it could be helpful for them to understand that. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Good. Well, I'd like that. It'd be fun. Um, well, thanks again, Marcus. It's been a lot of fun to, to get catch up with you and to learn this stuff. I, I know I've learned a ton um, since I since I came across your website. And I don't even know how I stumbled on your website, but I just happened on it and I started reading it and I couldn't stop. <laughs>
Thanks and so I'll put I'll put links in uh, in the show notes to your website, and which will ha it also has that that has a link to where they can buy your ebook, which I, again I would recommend if they want to get a much. handle on this. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, we'll be talking soon. I'm sure. Okay. Talk to you again soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye.